take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to be looking verse 7 through chapter 5 in verse number 3. Titling this message this morning, The Necessary Fruit of Saving Faith from 1 John. But while you're turning there, I want you to also turn to the Gospel of John, the first chapter. Keep your hand in 1 John, turn to the Gospel of John, the first chapter, and keep your hand there for a minute. I'm getting there. But until I get there, let's bow together in prayer. Lord, this morning as I come before you, and as those who know you as Lord and Savior come before you in worship, I pray, Lord, that you would make clear to us from the Word of God what are the necessary fruit of saving faith. For, Lord, it is so vital for us to know where we stand with you. And, Lord, it is so important for us to know that you do love your children. I pray, Lord, that you would convince us of that so we would learn to live without fear and with great boldness. So now, Lord, take me as your servant and speak through me today so your people can understand the word of God. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that your will would be done and that you would be glorified. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Often the question comes up, why did God love us? The only proper answer we can give is that he loved us because he would love us. In 1 John 4.19, don't turn there. We're going to look at that in a minute, but it says we love because he first loved us. I covered that passage somewhat last week. This is actually part two. But remember, God demonstrates his love to the whole world by being lifted up on a cross and dying. But he demonstrates his love specifically and in a special way to his children, to those who have come to trust in him as Lord and Savior. Because we know for sure from the word of God that God does not love anyone because of any goodness in the creature. He loves no one because of some, something foreseen in them that delighted him. In fact, the Bible does tell us in Psalm 143, for in your sight no one living is righteous. We also know that it is impossible for anything in man to merit the incarnation of Jesus Christ and his passion as the redeemer of sinners. That our redemption, like our election, springs from the spontaneous, self-originating love of God. As it says in Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Also, we were not converted because we had already inside of us some kind of inclination for God. We have no inclination for God. No one does. People have inclination for religion, but not for the God of the Bible, not for the God of creation. Also, we are not regenerated and made born again because of some good thing in our nature. For the Bible tells us in Romans 7, 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. Nothing good dwells in me. That means that we must owe our new birth entirely to God's love. Because in His love, 
He turns us from death to life, from darkness to light, from alienation of our mind and enmity of our spirit into a delightful path of love based on Christ's name alone. Now, if you're at the passage right there in John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, look at verse number 12. It says this, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Then notice in verse 13, who were born. Now we're talking about spiritual birth here. We're not talking about physical birth. It says who were born. Notice what it says, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. See, in that passage of Scripture, God chooses certain people to be saved. And God's choice of certain individuals to salvation before the foundation of the world rests solely on His sovereign will. His choice of particular sinners was not based on any foreseen response or obedience on their part, such as faith and repentance, that those whom God sovereignly elected, He brings through the power of the Holy Spirit to a willing acceptance of Christ. Thus, God's choice of the sinner, not the sinner's choice of Christ, is the ultimate cause of salvation. Now, why do I say that? And why is that important? Because all that displays this, that God, before the foundation of the world, loved those who he he would call to himself. And that love continues on today. And it will continue on for eternity. Because the point is, from last week, and I said last week, that when we believe, when we know, when we feel that God loves us, as a natural result from that true knowledge of Jesus Christ, love to Him is returned to Him by us. And it's returned to Him gladly. So as we learn more and more of the Word of God, an outcome of learning more and more of the Word of God is our knowledge increases, our faith is strengthened, Our convictions get deeper. In what area am I talking about that we are really loved by God? It is the Word of God that's going to convince you of that. And I am saying this morning, you must be convinced of that. Now turn back to 1 John, because love to God, Now get this, love to God is a mark of God's true sheep. They hear His voice. They follow Him once they hear His voice. And I can say this, they continue to follow Him the rest of their life. And they continue to listen to His voice the rest of their life. And in listening to Him and following Him, they want to obey Him. That's, in a way, how we display our love to God. So, this morning from 1 John, I want to share five necessary fruit of saving faith based on our love to God. And the first one is found in verse number 7 of chapter 4 of verse, of chapter 4 of 1 John, verse 7. And here's the first one, the first necessary fruit. And remember, when, when we think about fruit, we're thinking about fruit hanging on a tree, right? That we really know what kind of tree it is by saying, wow, that is a pear tree, because pears are hanging on it, right? Or that is a peach tree, because peaches are hanging on it. Well, that is a true believer, because this fruit is hanging on their life. It's there, it's real, you can see it. It's tangible. 
You can smell it and, in a sense, touch it. So there's fruit that you and I will display. And it is based on, first, God's love toward us, and then our love toward God, right? So, the first one is this. Love to God is necessary, is a necessary mark of, first, the new birth. Look at it in verse 7. Beloved, of course, that term beloved specifically talking about his children that's that's a that's a term of endearment god's not talking to everyone he's talking to his children right and he says this beloved let us love one another for love is a is from god and everyone who loves notice is born of god that's the term there so see Love to God is a necessary mark of the new birth. How do you know that you're born again? You love God. Well, no one has the right to say that they are born again unless they sincerely and truly love God. Just as the sun must give light and fire must give heat. So the Christian bears the marks that he is truly or she is truly born again and has a genuine love for God when he or she displays the new characteristics of a vital connection to Christ. Now, there are three tests in 1 John that are really important to apply to our lives to know whether you and others are a child of God, born into God's family, or are you still in the family of Satan or the family of the devil? Now, First John addresses that, and he, and he addresses it, uh, the Apostle John addresses it in three areas. Now, it was John Stott who brought these three tests together, and I think they're quite accurate to the text. The first test was the moral test. All right, the moral test simply is a test of righteousness and obedience. It's the practical test of righteousness. It does not mean, though, in other words, that a Christian, once they become a Christian, starts to live righteously. They start to live according to what it says in God's Word. It doesn't mean, though, a Christian becomes sinless or they are without sin. But it does mean that you are moving forward in righteous living, since you've become born again to God's family, you're in a new family, right? You're in, really, when you become a Christian, you get new family rules. You have a new father, the heavenly father, right? You have a savior, a mediator between you and God. All right, so therefore, you're coming into a new relationship with the God of heaven and earth, the God who died on the cross for your sins, and therefore, because of that, the seed of God is planted in your heart, you become a new creature, and because of that, you are now, and I want to say it like this, you are now going to move forward through your life and become more and more righteous in your living than you ever were before you were born again. Now, a passage of Scripture to back this up, right in First John, look at First John chapter 3, uh, turn back a page there, or on the other page, verse 7 through 10. And I want you to notice what he writes here based on this moral test that is applied to believers. The first one is, look at verse 7 of 1 John 3. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. And verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appears for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Verse number 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Verse 10. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does, who does not love his brother. In other words, in this passage of Scripture, it's giving the moral test that once you become a believer, that you are not going to, this word is important, practice sin. That means you are not going to have this 
pattern of habitual sin going on in your life. It's going to be broken because now you are in the family of God. You have the Spirit of God. You have the Word of God. And now you're walking in the light and the light is exposing your sin. And you're saying, Lord, I want you to forgive me of this sin and cleanse me of this sin. And I want that out of my life. So see, it is evident that someone who is not a believer just keeps practicing sin. They just keep going on in their old patterns of sin over and over and over again. They didn't think anything wrong with it. They, they're delighted in their sin. They, they love their sin. They love that, as you and I loved it before we became believers, right? We just went on in it as normal. But the Bible is saying here, listen, the first necessary mark of a believer is that you're no longer walking in your sin and practicing it. You're actually putting it to death. A second test that comes up in John, which I'll not look at here, is the test is the social test. It's the test of love. It involves Christian relationships with other Christians. In other words, do you love other brothers and sisters in Christ first? Once you become a believer, do you love God's church? Right? And then there's a third test, a doctrinal test, and that's the test of belief in Jesus Christ, right? First uh, John 4, if you turn that back to First John 4, verse 2 and 3, uh, you will see there that anyone who, really who does not believe that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, the preexistent Son of God, who became flesh at a fixed point in real history and then died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and is exalted in heaven right now, and is coming back again. If you don't believe that, then you don't believe the Jesus of the New Testament and of the, of the Bible, and you don't believe the God of the Bible. So therefore, if you don't believe that, then you cannot be genuinely born again into God's family if you do not believe that. Like it says in the First John 4 passage, verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh from God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of Antichrist, all right? So that this first necessary mark is that I love God, uh, and that mark of loving God is the new birth, right? I am born into God's family. Now, that's the first one. The second necessary fruit of salvation is to love God is a necessary mark of knowing God. Knowing God. And if you look in verse number 7 of chapter 4, it says this, and everyone who loves is born of God, and then notice what it says, and what? Knows God, right? They know God. And then in verse number 8, it says, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So this is what this means. That true knowledge of God that comes from the Bible, true knowledge of God, leads one to love God or to have love for God, and to love and to know God are actually synonymous terms in Scripture. But it's a very important here to not to confuse as to what it means to know God. Knowing him is not knowing facts about him. Just facts about him. It's not simply being able to recognize him operating in the circumstances uh, of, your, of someone's life or another person's life. It is knowing him personally as your Lord and Savior it's knowing him for yourself, for oneself. See, I know God. So, so knowing God involves, from First John, fellowshipping with him, it says in the Word of God, so that my joy may be made complete. Walking in the light means I am knowing God. I am practicing that. Identifying and confessing sin is part of knowing God, knowing what God wants. Also, being in Him is 
knowing God. For it says in Second First uh, John chapter two, verse five, we must be in Christ. And it says, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. So being in him means we know him. And then also, maybe oddly to some people, knowing God means to keep his commandments, to keep his word, to obey him. It's it's interesting. How important is it that you and I or anyone who's a believer knows that we, we love God? Well, Jesus taught it thought it very important when he came to his apostle Peter and he said to him, and, and I'd like you to take your Bibles now and turn over to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 21, and I want, want you to see the challenge that Jesus gave to the apostle Peter before Peter actually went out and began to serve God. If you remember what it says in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verse 15 through 17, remember three times Jesus said to Peter something, right? Let's see what he said in verse 15 of John, chapter 21. It says, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, here's his question. Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And then he and he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. Now I'm not going to look at the the different Greek nuances in here. That's not my point this morning. But I want you to say a second time. You think that okay? Uh, I asked the question. He answered. Should have been enough, right? Look what it says in verse number sixteen. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. Verse uh, 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Look at Peter's response. Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Now, when you see threefold repetition in Scripture, the question becomes not only important for Peter, for it becomes important for every single believer. And that importance is that do you love Jesus? Do you, that means, do you know Jesus? Are you born again? All that is involved in that question. But I want you to notice something from these passages of Scripture. Notice that once the matter is established, that the person loves Jesus, and that is confirmed, then three times Jesus says, then go serve me. And how does you serve Christ? By tending my lambs, by shepherding my sheep, and by tending my sheep. So see, before service can be genuine service to the Lord, we must be convinced ourselves that we love God, that we love Jesus, that every motivation of our heart from that point on in any kind of service would, because, would, would come because we love Christ. And so that would become the important part of what it means to love Christ, what it means to know God. So, see, you're, you're, you are not born again if you do not know God. You are not born again if you do not love him. Now, this comes on the heel of the third necessary fruit in 1 John chapter 4, verse number 11, and that is the necessary foundation of love to others. Again, I cannot really love people until I know God loves me and I love Him. That's the progression in Scripture. 
You cannot get away from it. You cannot mix it up. You cannot reverse the order. This is how it comes. And so here in verse number 11, the foundation, love to God is the necessary foundation to love to others. It says, beloved, in verse 11, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So here's the progression. If God loved us, which he did, then we ought to love one another. So a manifestation as of us loving God is loving people. Even in 1 John uh, 3, it's all over 1 John, but another passage verse 14, it says, we know that we have passed, what does it say, out of death into life, what? Because we love the brethren. We love the brethren. And when it says brethren there, we love the people of God. We love the church. We love truly born-again, blood-bought believers. We love them. We have a connection to them in Christ. More than anybody, even our own blood family, we have a greater connection with other believers than we do with our own family. Of course, if those family members are believers, then we have like a twofold connection. It's great to have believers in your family that know they're born again and are loving God and they're serving God and loving people because they know God loved them. So the source of all love is God. God dwells in us and God's love is perfected in us. So anyone claiming to know God and failing to show love to other believers can only mean that either they that person is a deceiver or they are themselves deceiving. They're self-deceivers. They're deceiving themselves. Again, in, in 1 John 4, look at verse number 19 and verse 20. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That, you know, th- this passage of Scripture is so incredibly convicting. You can't run around saying that you love God and have any kind of one ounce of hatred towards someone else, especially if those people are believers, and, and say that you love God and you serve God. You, can't do, you cannot do that. You understand that? It just doesn't mix together. How can I say that I love God, who I have not seen, but I trust by faith, and I will see someday, when I can't love the person I see? Now, you may think, and I I know I have experienced it, and you have too, it's hard to love people. It It is the most difficult task that we are called to as believers. That's why it cannot be done on your own power. It cannot be done by your own knowledge. And if you are not convinced God's love loves you and that he has, that you are, have assurance of salvation, that you know you're born again and that you know God, then you can't even love people yet. You're not there yet. You're coming there, but you're not there yet. And I think this is going to be the great struggle for the believer is that the believer is growing in their love for people because of God's love for them. Because we conclude often, rightfully so, Lord, how could you have loved me? I understand more now my sin and what has done in my life and how it has wrecked my life. I understand my thought patterns now and where the, my imagination used to go. And I think now, and some of the private sins that, and secret sins you and I have done that nobody knows about. But you know about it now, and it's constantly a reminder uh, to you. And you, you conclude, Lord, how could you have loved me? There was nothing in me to love right. Exactly. Because it wasn't based on you. It was based on God's will to love you. And so therefore, that love cannot be changed or altered or moved around. 
Even when we fall into sin as believers, God does not love you less. He does not turn His back on you. His love is lavished upon you, it says in Scripture, right? We are bathing, basking, soaking in His love. Even when we sin. Because we know as we're walking in the light, we don't want to sin like we used to. And why? Because we love God. And when you love somebody, one thing you don't want to do is sin against them. And when you do, you feel terrible. You want to get it right. You can't take it. Right? You, you go through that, that emotional roller coaster to get that thing right. So the question that you have to ask yourself today, based on this third point, is that do you love other brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, of course, if you're not a believer, you can't love other brothers and sisters in Christ because you don't know God. And if you don't know God, you don't know that he loves you yet. If he's put his love upon you. And if you don't know those things, then you can't love other brothers and sisters in Christ. You only love people that you want to love. You only love people that are likable. You only love people that you can let into your circle. So according to Jesus, in the Gospel of John, Jesus gave his disciples a new command. It says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, the world will know that Christians are indeed Christians and are immediately connected to Christ for what reason? That they love one another. You know why? Because love is observable. Love is a a tangible characteristic that God gives his people, right? If you say that you're a believer and you know God, the world says, show me, right? And when the world sees a whole group of people loving each other as they ought to, and they understand why they love each other, they're, they're not in the dark about that at all, then see, that is observable love among all true Christians. In fact, Francis Schaeffer said this, according to Jesus himself, the world has the right to decide whether we are true Christians and true disciples of Christ. He goes on to say that Jesus gives the world the right to judge whether the Father has sent the Son on the basis of whether the world sees observable love among all true Christians. End quote. That's heavy. So, if there is infighting in a church, if there is bickering and complaining and grumbling in a church, is the, if there's talking about people behind their back in a church, if there's gossip around tea parties or whatever you do about someone else in the church, that does not show love to the world. You know what that says to the world? You're just like us. Nothing's changed, right? You're, all, you're, the, you're made of the same thing. We're made. There's nothing, nothing's happened in your life. So, so, see, the world cannot argue, though, with an easily observed love amongst believers, And so this is what, in this new coming year, this is what I believe that we need to practice more. I think we need to be creative on how we can reach out to love one another in very practical ways. And in in doing so, have opportunities before the world that they can see our observable fruit uh, and they would not easily dismiss our profession of faith in Christ because of our attitude, because of our character, because we're different, right? The Spirit of God's doing something in us. We don't look at our, our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, in an, uh, down our nose, or we don't look at them with contempt, or we don't look at them as a nuisance, 
and especially don't look at them as our enemy. Someone who knows Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're not my enemy. Right? They're my ally in Christ. They're my brother and sister in Christ. We have a connection, an eternal connection, that is not going to be broken. That's not to say that some people are not hard to love. So, it's not to be so among those who claim they love God. True? See, this is a, this is a visible fruit on the branches. And this is a fruit that goes beyond our doors to the world. This is the display of the world. The church is the display for the world. Show me that you love one another and you don't have to convince me that you love the God who created the heaven and the earth, the God who died on the cross of Calvary for sinners. You don't have to prove anything. I see it. Because this is unusual stuff. True? But we have to be working at it. Matter of fact, we have to be deliberate at it. Right? It doesn't just happen. We have to seize the opportunities because the days are what? Evil. We have to take it by the horns. And we have to trust God that the display of love is going to be given to, um, to the world by a group of people who call themselves Christians. Here's the fourth thing, and I only have five. In 1 John chapter 4, verse number 18, a necessary fruit uh, is simply this. Love to God is the principal means of holy peace. Isn't everybody looking for peace? Where do you find peace? You find peace in our relationship with Christ. Look what it says in verse number 18. There is no fear in what? Love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected or matured in love. Now, this could also be called here parental peace. What do I mean? I mean... I'm at peace with the Father through Jesus Christ, the Son, right? I'm at peace, Romans 5, 1, through the blood of his cross, right? Now, if there is no love for God, that means there is no salvation. That means there is no peace. It's the peace of God that reigns in my heart as a believer, in your heart as a believer, it is a restfulness in Christ. It is a restfulness. What kind of restfulness? I am no longer under God's condemnation. I do not have to fear God will punish me for my sins. See, why? Because I know God loves me and love casts out fear, but I know God loved me by his demonstration on the cross that wiped my sins away. So in in a very real way, the Lord has removed all our sins. What is there to make us afraid? That act was a display of love. Not a display to cause fear. But a display to remove fear. That means this. That anyone who does not love God only has restlessness and fear and torment, especially when it comes to death and judgment, and deep distress in their soul. That's what I had before I became a believer. I wasn't looking for God, but I knew one thing. I was distressed in my soul. Didn't know what to do about it. Was distressed and feared punishment. Because I used to learn the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed tells you, that if you don't, uh, that you're going to go to hell. There is a, there's a place called hell. So there was that fear there that, of course, should be there. But where there is love to God, there is a steady stream of rest, a steady stream of satisfaction of soul, a steady stream of delight in and, and really boldness before God. I can come boldly before the throne of God. 
Why? Because of Christ making a new and living way for me by his shed blood. He's burst open the curtain that separated the priest and the Holy of Holies. And now I don't need a priest. Christ, of course, is my priest. I come into God's throne being a child of God, and I come praying before God. I come crying for uh, mercy and his grace and, and, and uh, bring my petitions and my prayers before him. Why? Because I know he loves me. Fear is actually the beginning of torment of soul. And if we don't look to the Lord every day and trust him for what he has fully accomplished for us, well, then we tend, we tend to fall into a false pattern of contemplating the worst that lies ahead and end up tormenting ourselves. Don't we? We end up doing that. Oh, this is the worst that can happen. That's not ought, the way we ought to think. Knowledge that God loves me, cast out my tormenting dread of God. And when this is expelled, there is room for abounding love for God. So we don't have to be afraid. Because our sins were judged in Christ when he died on the cross, right? The Father cannot judge our sins without judging his Son again. Also, we do not have to be afraid because he first loved us. The very, very first of our relationship to God has been one of love. And it continues on and will continue on. And we don't need to be afraid because of the passage, perfect love casts out fear. From the very first, as we grow in the love of God, we cease to be fearful of what he will do. So God wants his children to live in an atmosphere of love and confidence, not fear and torment. So growing in God's love will give us boldness in the day of judgment. Right? I don't have to be f- uh, afraid of the day of judgment because, because I understand, and you as a believer should understand, what great love has accomplished for us in our behalf. And it will give us boldness to face life itself, and also the end. So as we mature in God's love gradually, the fear vanishes. And our hearts are fully controlled by his love and we learn to rest in God's love the rest of our lives. So living out love by faith in Christ as Savior and Lord, the Lord casts out fear of judgment. So that that becomes important to the passage of Scripture. Look at verse number 18. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect fear casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. And so the Bible tells us simply that, listen, we don't have to be afraid of punishment. Why? Because Christ has completed it all for us, right? See, when we sing of the deep, deep love of Jesus, we're forever learning what happened on the cross. We're forever learning how deeply God loves us and how secure we've become in that love. That's why, really, the the point of the Bible is, I say to people when we're witnessing to them, these things I've written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Well, if I know I love God, and I know God loves me first, I know I have eternal life. Why? Because that's one of his promises. You believe in me, I'll give you eternal life. And though your body dies, you'll live again. Right? That's his promise. And our God cannot lie to us. So therefore, I grow in assurance of my salvation. That I know that not even death can take it away. And then one last thing. A necessary fruit of saving faith is found in chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. Love to God is the spring of true obedience. Love to God is the spring of true obedience. Look what it says in verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God. This is 1 John 5, 2. When we love God and observe his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. First, John has a way in 1 John of adding these little endings. 
to qualify what he just said. Because you know what? Keeping commandments under the law was burdensome. But how come, as a believer, they're no longer burdensome? Because when you have a love relationship with someone, there's really the command is not something I have to do because of duty, even though duty's involved. It's something I, 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 I do because I want to do it. Right? I want to do it. I in, even delight in doing it. The, the origin of love, in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 7, love comes from God. If a person loves God, that person will seek to please him and keep his commandments, right? So, in the habitually obedient believer, God's love has been perfected. It's maturing. God attains its goal objectively in that person. And what's the goal of God in that person? Obedience to all of God's word. Leading that person into a deep and a full-orbed acquaintance with God, God's love personally. That's why you see these maturing saints as they have been growing in the word of God and the word of God's been molding and shaping them all their life. They just have a restful trust in God. They just love God. And they're basking in their that, and they're waiting to see him face to face. At the end of their life, they're just waiting and, and desiring to see him face to face. So the test of making sure that you belong to him is obedience. The ground for the Christian's assurance is obedience. By this we know that we are in him, the Bible says, that obedience is a spiritual matter. Obedience is a test of love for God. Obedience involves attitudes as well as actions, meaning that when we serve the Father, we are to do it with gladness. We are to do it with a spirit of cheerfulness, not a contentious, inconsistent, inconsiderate, uncooperative spirit, but with love to God and enjoy the tasks that God's given us to do. God's given you gifts and you obey him in using your gifts, then you do that with gratitude and with uh, joy. And then you find out this. This is, this is an amazing thing, that obedience is, is, is a positive thing for a Christian. It's not a negative concept in Christianity. Why do you do that? Because I love the Lord. And when, really, when you stop understanding that, or for, for, and usually it's going to be sin that messes that up, then you probably won't be serving the Lord with cheerfulness. You'll be serving the Lord with a grumble spirit. Isn't there anybody else to do this? I'm on the one doing it, you know? course you know if you're a nursery worker this is going to be tested all right in the nursery but nothing like cheerful nursery workers being there on time delighting in doing the things nursery workers has to do uh, in the nursery you know all the things you have to do and uh, it's not always a pleasant job it's not always a delightful job to the nostrils but it is a job that must be done And when you do that job, then the word of God gets preached and the Sunday schools get done and the Lord's word goes out. And that's only one area, of course. It's all the areas that when we come to the place we're grumbling and complaining, we have to get back to this and say, okay, where have I fallen off the cart in my love to God? And I need to get back and, of course, repent of my sin of not loving the Lord as I ought to and and. Say, Lord, give me your joy again. You know, even David prayed, Lord, return the joy of my salvation back to me. Uh, I think that's something that, remember, Satan wants to rob your joy from you. He wants to take it from you uh, because it is so vital for the the Christian life. So these are the five necessary fruit of saving faith. And 
I mean that. These must be there. Or the person who may be claiming to love and know God doesn't know and love him at all. And usually they're just doing what they're doing out of duty and not out of love for Christ. Right? So this next year, these are some of the fruit that we need to be looking for. These are some of the fruit that we need to be maturing in. These are are some of the fruit that we need to be nurturing in ourselves and in other people in the congregation. And in doing so, may the Holy Spirit have his way and set us apart in these necessary fruits. So we are assured of and convinced of our own salvation based on God's will to save us and his demonstration of love toward us and his love in keeping us, right? And when, believe me, this is the, the, this is the way God's going to grow us. This is where he's taking you all. And yes, do we come kicking and screaming sometimes? Yes, but he will bring you this way. And um, I pray that this is some of the things we may grow in this coming year in our congregation, in our own personal lives, because we all need it. No one could ever say that I have arrived in loving God. They can't say that, because I know they haven't. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for the word of God. I pray, Lord, that today you would work these things in our life, For we know, Lord, it's already your will. And I pray, Lord, that in each one of them, we would know that we're born again. We would know that, Lord, we know you. We would know that, and we are growing in our love for others. We would know also, Lord Jesus, that you are uh, giving us a special peace in our heart because of our connection to you. And then, Lord, we also, Lord, are growing in our obedience. An obedience, Lord, that is a delightful obedience, a joyful obedience. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us a love for wanting to be with your people. And, Lord, give us a a deeper love this year for you. Uh, So, Lord, it's manifested in, in all that we do. And, Lord, forgive us when we sin. Uh, Help us to confess our sin quickly. And I pray, Lord, as we confess our sin, that you would cleanse us from all our sin and our unrighteousness, and that you would make us what you want us to be. And I I just ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand.